Our guest today is the satirist and writer Craig Brown, who is perhaps best known for his work with the magazine Private Eye. The author of 18 books, including a biography of Princess Margaret, has most recently turned his attention to a certain four boys from Liverpool. His new book, One, Two, Three, Four, The Beatles in Time, includes several visits he made to the city, sometimes with slightly awkward consequences. I'm Ellen Kerwin. And I'm Laura Davis, and this is Beatles City. So what is the book about, Laura? I really enjoyed it. It's very different to any other Beatles book that I've ever read. Um, they can often be quite serious and quite sombre, um, even even the most passionate ones. This is very chatty, very lively. He really moves around in time, so it's, it's not a traditional um, biography in any sense. And it also includes experience of fans and the sort of feelings that they have about the band as well. And so he, he actually came to Liverpool to research the book, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He's a big fan of Liverpool. He said he thought it, it was even a nice place to live, which we both agree with, certainly. <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah, he spent some time at the Adelphi during the International Beatles Festival, which actually should have been taking place this week, but unfortunately, due to lockdown, it, it hasn't gone ahead. And he also visited... John Lennon and Paul McCartney's houses and he met the custodians there um, Colin and Sylvia who we we did feature on a previous series of Beatles City and they were great you know sharing all their stories of the of the houses and um, he seemed to have a slightly different experience going around but he is a humorist um, by nature and I think that that he's quite exaggerated his experience for, for a bit of comedy. So what was your starting point for this? What made you write the book? Well, I've always, um, I'm like, you know, millions of people. I've always loved uh, the Beatles. I've sort of lived with the Beatles since I was about, you know, eight or nine. And I thought it would sort of, it would also lend itself as a story to the way I did my previous book, which is about Princess Margaret, who's obviously a very different character. But uh, so doing lots of, short chapters and taking them from lots of different angles and not necessarily going chronologically or doing that normal biography thing of talking about their great great grandparents and most biographies you have a very boring trudge through the um <laughs> through the great grandparents and their childhoods and everything though actually the beatles childhoods are very interesting and, and that would give a, a new sort of life to a beatles biography because there are obviously lots of beatles biographies and even before i'd started writing the book, I'd, I'd read an awful lot. And so I didn't want to do just another book about the Beatles. And so I hope I haven't. So for me, I, f- I felt that you really kind of took us there, sort of captured the excitement, particularly of the early days. I had quite a lot um, of, because I could, in this sort of formula that I do, you can kind of go off in slightly random directions. But I wanted to do, to have quite a lot about fans so memories of fans because i think one of the most fascinating things about the beatles is not the beatles themselves but their effect on well on me but on on millions of other people and of course each person people get very vehement well as you know in the liverpool echo people get very vehement about their idea of the beatles Mm -hmm. uh, because they have some 
you know, emotional, psychological hold over people, particularly because it happened during most people's adolescence and youth. And I wanted to kind of explore that or at least have people um, talking about what they remembered of their feelings about the, the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, like you say, it is, it is important, the sort of, the impact that they've had on people almost more than their story themselves in some ways. A friend of mine, um, Cresta Connolly, I got to write a, a short chapter, and and she just she she said rather eccentrically uh, that her um, she always thought that uh, you know as a sort of eleven year old girl she always thought that uh, John was her father and Paul was her mother. When the Beatles split up, it was as if her parents were divorcing, and I think and that's I I think that's the way not not exactly the way that everyone thinks because everyone has their own picture of uh how the beatles dominate their lives but uh, but i think that it, their effect is very peculiar on people i thought it was interesting when you were saying that um that the way that the way that we see the beatles is as much a reflection of ourselves yes yes i think so you can't you can't divorce them from yourselves whereas i think with maybe with other groups um you can, because I, I think the, the thing about the Beatles, unlike any group since, is that they, the, there weren't all that many groups. I mean, obviously lots of sort of minor groups milling around, but I mean, there was so much attention on the Beatles throughout the world that even with someone like Michael Jackson, it, it didn't really come close to, to that. The effect Jackson had on the world was, was very, very modest compared to the Beatles. And the Beatles influenced the way people looked, the way they dressed, the way they thought about politics, the way they thought about art. And and so obviously everyone, when they talk about the Beatles, are talking about themselves because it's impossible to, to divorce. And this is talking about people who sort of lived through them. But it is impossible to divorce your thoughts from, from the effect the Beatles had on them. I mean, it's di different with... Uh, your younger generation, but I think I think weirdly, even for those people who, uh, you know, weren't born when the Beatles split up, I think that their music still has some weird subliminal effect, which which other music doesn't, and I don't quite know why that is. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. So, what's your own relationship with them? Um, well, I I in in some ways I was born nineteen fifty seven, so I suppose I was sort of six when they took off and so I was I, I remember getting for Christmas it must have been Christmas I suppose it was Christmas 1964 I had three brothers and we all got Beatles wigs <laughs> kind of scratchy plastic things uh, for that Christmas uh, and so we, I was aware of the Beatles but and I would have known she loves you yeah 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 and the words yeah 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 were always what the sort of my parents generation would think of the Beatles, you know, they couldn't even say yes properly and all that kind of, there was a kind of snobbishness about the Beatles at that time. And, uh, but I, I then, and I then remember my oldest brother showing me Sergeant Pepper and, um, and saying that this was the greatest record ever made. And I thought this was a kind of completely objective point of view, as if the world had decided that this was the greatest record ever made. So I remember getting really interested in them. And so I'd know all the lyrics to Sgt. Pepper. And so then obviously you, you then catch up on songs from Revolver and things. 
and then I was obsessive after that, you know, with um, the White Album, Ab Abbey Road, and that, and Let It Be. But I, one of the delights of doing the book was sort of, in a way, discovering for the first time the the beauty of their early songs, which I'd always, I, I was obviously aware of most of them, almost all of them. Um, but I'd just seen them as sort of rather simplistic versions, whereas the later songs were the interesting ones. And in, in some ways, the later songs are more interesting, but there is some, there's something so delightful about those simple early melodies and harmonies and so sort of joyful uh, that I'm, I'm really glad to have kind of caught up with them having written the book. You talk in the book about the blissful ignorance of their early songwriting. Do you think that, that they needed that, that they needed not to have come from a sort of... I don't know, they didn't have music lessons, they learnt from records, they picked up instruments and didn't know how to tune them, never mind play them to begin with, did they, Did that? I think it's an interesting thing with all pop music, especially pop music since, that actually ignorance is, uh, can, can really help with creativity because you're not sort of hidebound by what you should be doing. And you don't know all these other composers that come before, you don't know the rules. You don't know, especially in a way, you don't know what's considered too simple and, uh, and too naive. And a lot of those songs would only have two or three chords. Uh, and I think if they'd been more sophisticated, they'd be thinking, oh, no, we can't do that. We have to be, you know, cleverer and uh, more progressive. Pop stars, I think, only usually have about a five or six year lifespan of being really creative. And I suspect it's got something to do with, with just knowing too much uh, after a bit. I mean, as well as, as things like getting too rich to be able to identify with the ordinary life, which is your music fed off before. And that, it's also to do with knowing too much about music and kind of getting lost and not being able to uh, regain that initial spark you had and this, with a spark which came from a kind of naivety. I'd imagine success would make you self-conscious of your own work in a way as well. Yes, I think, I think that's true. And you have lots of, you know, the minute you put out a record, then everyone's interpreting it or saying whether it's good or bad or, you know, and, and then you read all the stuff and it's, it, it'd be very hard to just think freshly, you know, and just write a lyric like, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. The glory of that lyric is, is that it's so simple. else that the book really sort of brought back for me I mean it's something that I know obviously but it, it sort of visualized it in a way is just how quickly their fame came to them like one minute they're playing folk clubs in Scotland and then the next minute they're these enormous stars it's amazing that I think I, I it really came home to me when I was writing the book just the, the speed because of sort of living through the Beatles in a way a month when you're 10 passes as um takes as long a time to pass as a, a year when you're you know my age now and so you, one always thought the Beatles were uh, were doing things sort of quite fast but you realize how incredibly busy they were and as you would say the, the speed with which they became famous once the, once the sort of uh, snowball started building into an avalanche it really was an avalanche yes especially that sort of the end of 1962 the beginning of 1963 and the, you know one month they'd be freezing in a van trying to keep warm by lying on each other and you know the next month they'd be um you know the palladium or 
uh, doing stadiums or going on world tours. And also another thing allied to that is how, quite how young they were. You know, they were all uh, under the age of 30 by the time they split up. And yet, you know, as a child, I saw them as sort of really grown up and everyone was following their every word of looking for wisdom in them. And of course, they were quite wise. But I, th I think it's sort of, I think it's rather extraordinary that they didn't go all go stark raving mad. One of the reasons I admire Paul McCartney a lot is that he, he didn't go mad. And I think all the pressure was on him to go mad. Yeah, I suppose it's their sort of personalities that they had before all this began seem to have sort of set the way that they would be once they became famous. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's very true. And you can see in their childhoods, I mean, you can see, for instance, in Ringo's childhood, Ringo being easy, the, the poorest and one parent family, and then being, you know, close to death as a child and in hospital for two or three years. That there's something about Ringo as a Beatle that he he was he was always sort of pleased to be a Beatle. He didn't sort of have that angst, which grew in the well, certainly in George and John. He he was very sort of unspoiled, and you can see that comes from his background. And also, I think Paul McCartney's sort of security came from you know uh, he obviously knew that both his parents really loved him, uh, and they were a very close family, and you could feel that sense of security in his in his songs and his attitude to life. And I, yeah, so, I mean, as a, as a biographical subject or four subjects, uh, and also Brian Epstein is a, another uh, big figure in the book. They are sort of perfect for a biographer because their characters, you know, you can see the seeds of their characters in their childhoods and then, uh, and then what the world throws at them and how they react to what the world is throwing at them. Uh, you can also trace to their childhoods in some ways. Though obviously it's very easy with hindsight to make, to sort of join the dotted lines. Yeah, so I think for, for any biographer, the Beatles are almost the perfect subject. It was actually um, something that you wrote about Ringo that I thought was really interesting about their fame as well. And I think he was at home, was he? And somebody spilled his tea in his saucer and then thought, oh no, we yeah. can't possibly pass that to him. Within his, you know, his very own family, that just... They really said, oh, let us clear that up for you. And he suddenly realised, and that shows how self-aware he was. And he realised that there was no going, you know, he, he just thought, oh, these are my family. They're not meant to be people who are fussing about clearing up after me, you know. Uh, and and he realised that there was no going back. And I, I think there is, um, I mean, with other pop stars I've known, when you have fame of that level it does create a barrier but even you know even with close members of the family it's it's a it's a it's a hard thing for everyone to take on board and to treat you as normal and certainly aunt mimi was very good with john and that's uh, you know people are ru rude about aunt mimi but actually she and john had this very close relationship right up to their death and i think that was because of all the beatles relations um aunt mimi was the one who was genuinely unaffected by by john's <laughs> success you know she she'd always say why do you put on that silly accent when you're on because he slightly overdid a sort of scouse accent and uh, but he he liked that and i think that was that sort of grounded him when he was going off in all other directions he, she'd always have him saying oh don't be such a silly boy kind of thing mm. You sort of present two very different portraits of her in the book. Yes, well, certainly there is this idea, which they certainly say going around the um, John Lennon's 
house, you know, the tour guide there says, even though it's her house. So I, I wondered what she'd make of her house being you know, turned into this sort of shrine to a monster by the tour guide. But he says, she was a terrible snob. She was a snob. Well, lots of people are snobs in that kind of quite gentle way. So you can see, you can see her and, and it's one way of looking at her as snobbish, uh, over strict, unpleasant to Cynthia, uh, um, hatred of fun, all that kind of thing. And, and all those are probably true. But uh, on the other hand, well, you know, if, if she hadn't been there, I mean, John barely kept on the straight and narrow. If she hadn't been there, I, you know, it seemed to me that he'd have just been a kind of delinquent of some sort and that he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have had even anything to sort of beat against with Mimi. Uh, and she also bought him his first guitar, so yeah, yeah. can't be denied that. It was, um, it was great to hear about your, your visits to, <laughs> to Liverpool and the experiences that you'd had here on various different tours. Yes. Well, I, I mean, I loved uh, Liverpool and I had actually, uh, I'd gone to the On The House tour about, I suppose, seven or eight years ago, the, the Paul and John's houses, and very much enjoyed them, but I hadn't gone uh, with the book in mind then, so I went um, back. Uh, it became, the great thing about being a writer, as you will know, is that, that anything bad that happens to you is in a way good copy. So you sort of, your secret <laughs> thing, you know, so with other people, a bad experience is, is just bad, but you can say, ha, oh, God, I can make, um, I can make something of this. And suddenly I was taking notes in, well, in both John and Paul's houses and the, um, uh, the guides, you know, started saying you're not allowed to take notes. I thought this is extraordinary, National Trust House. You can't take notes. So they, they seem to me unbelievably bossy and unfairly bossy. And so I, I put all that in the book. I mean, it's, it's sort of humorous. I, I, I think one of the things about my book, compared to uh, a lot of Beatles books, it, it is quite, um, it's quite kind of merry read. It's, it's got quite a lot of jokes and that sort of thing. I mean, I'm... Uh, if I have any reputation as a journalist, it's, it's as a sort of uh, humorist. Quite a lot of other Beatles books, you know, how good they are. I mean, like the Lewis and ones, you know, they're, they're quite so. Mm. Yeah, I think that's fair. So, um, and you, you went, you've experienced the Adelphi as well at, for International Beatles Week. Yeah, I have actually, um, I've been to the Adelphi a, a few times and the Adelphi is rather um, extraordinary place, isn't it? I mean, it should be so splendid. Uh, its glory days are behind it, obviously. But the, um, um, the Beatles mm -hmm. is extraordinary, that every room downstairs just full of people, either uh, tribute bands playing, for the most part, very well, or um, this amazing Beatles merchandise. I mean, not just t-shirts and things, but uh, letters selling for thousands of pounds and autographs things and Beatles dolls and it just shows you what an extraordinary thing the Beatles were because you wouldn't have a Rolling Stones week I don't think people obviously some people prefer the Stones to the Beatles but and they have all the Stones albums but you don't have that amazing kind of emotional connection with the Stones I don't think uh, mm. and I don't think people would be collecting Stones memorabilia to such an extent. It seems to go back to what you were saying before that it People's sort of fandom around the Beatles seems to be about their their self perception, their yeah, self identity. Yeah, you ca you can't divorce yourself from your love of 
the Beatles, where I suppose uh, with the Stones you you can. I suppose it goes back to this of the idea that they were such four such distinctive characters and personalities. The Stones were almost just one personality, weren't they? I mean, it was a sort of collective personality, a slightly sort of sneery, rebellious, you know, dancey, all that kind of thing. But uh, you couldn't say that there's a sufficient di difference between, say, uh, Keith Richards' personality and Bill Wyman's or that, you know. You say in the book that if you were to be a Beatle, it would be, it would be Paul at, at the very particular point in his life when he was living with Jane Asher. What, what is it about yeah, that, that that appealed to you? Well, I thought that might reflect, you know, my own kind of middle-class aspirations uh, as much. But uh, there was something about, well, I mean, Paul started going out with Jane Asher at the end of 64, 65, that kind of thing, and was with her three years. And he lived in the Asher's house in Wimpole Street, which is just along from Harley Street in London. Uh, so big, grand house and a very kind of interesting family, a very distinguished doctor. And he invented the idea of Munchausen's disease. I mean, he named it. And so, you know, amazingly distinguished man and, and witty writer and everything. So I, I looked through a lot of his articles in the British Medical Journal. And the mother was a uh, music teacher and had actually taught George Martin the oboe 10 years before. And they were just very welcoming to Paul. And they he had his own room there. He uh, composed a lot of his songs, uh, either in his room or right at the bottom of the house. And they also introduced him to a lot of literature, to a lot of classical music, uh, avant-garde music. And at the same time, he was this great um, idol uh, around the world and having a great time. You know, one of the things people forget about the Beatles, because it's slightly coloured by uh, the end of the Beatles, where they became a bit sour with each other, but just how much fun they had with each other and, and what good friends they were. Yeah, so when I said I'd like, if I was a Beatle, I'd be Paul in those years, it was slightly because the, the Beatles themselves were such fun to be in. And also, you know, Jane Asher uh, is a very nice, beautiful person, and you're surrounded by this uh, marvellous family. So it, it seemed to me that that those moments in Paul's life were completely perfect. Do you think that we will will we see you in Liverpool again? Will you be will you be visiting? Uh, yeah, no, I love Liverpool. And actually, I, I um uh, last time when we were there, I thought, oh God, I, I want to um stay, and uh, even thought it would be a nice place to live. Actually, and there is something very special about Liverpool, and I'm not um just sucking up because talking to the Liverpool echo. <laughs> uh, it's a place like unlike uh, anywhere else. Apart from anything else, I, I mean, there are lots of th completely unbeatly things about Liverpool. The architecture is very beautiful. The, the you know the Walker Gallery is amazing. I think. Well, that's good to hear. It's good that you went, you enjoyed your trip. It wasn't just tour guides telling you off. Oh no, <laughs> no. But then, if they hadn't told me off, I wouldn't have had anything to write about. So I'm I'm very grateful to them. <laughs> If you've enjoyed this episode of Beatles City, please remember to review, rate and subscribe on your favourite podcast app, where you can also find all episodes from our first three series. Join us next week when we'll be looking at the life of Stuart Sutcliffe with Beatles expert David Bedford, who runs Stuart's fan club on behalf of the Sutcliffe family. Before you go, we wanted to tell you about another podcast that we think you'll really enjoy, particularly if you're interested in Liverpool or social history. The Brink looks into the hard-left militant faction of the Labour Party, 
a secretive group that ran Liverpool in the 1980s, a time of vanishing jobs, shut docks and riots. It's created by our colleague, Julia Rampen, who is an excellent journalist and a great storyteller. Here's a clip. Um, how did I feel at the time? I mean, incredibly furious and I wanted to go knock him out on the platform, but at the same time so disappointed as well. It was gut-wrenching. No, it was horrible. It was, it was really very, very bad. I was just, how dare you? Just how dare you? They were supposed to be there for the serious business of defending the city and its people when they were just playing politics. This is the podcast that dives deep into 1980s Liverpool and the politics that emerged from it. This is The Brink. <laughs>